this letter that we're just beginning to read together, this book of Revelation, it feels so unfamiliar and strange to us. Whether you happen to be unfamiliar with the Bible and this book sounds extra weird, or you've read lots of things in the Bible, but you've never really gotten this book, we're taking it and together we're looking at it and we're admitting that it's strange and it's something we haven't always understood well, but we're trusting that God uses even the most unfamiliar or on the surface discomforting parts of the Bible to build up the church and to teach us and to give us hope and to help us get there, to help us really start to understand what this book is about and what's happening here and why it might seem so strange We need to talk about some difficult things. We're going to talk about literature, and I hope you can pay attention to that. And we're going to talk about history, ancient history, and I hope that that's something that you can follow along with too. And we're going to talk about our lives and our world today. And sometimes that can be really difficult and uncomfortable as well. This letter, it was addressed to a whole community of churches each with its own unique set of circumstances, but all broadly facing similar challenges. What makes this letter so different from a lot of the other letters that we might read in the New Testament is, as Phil shared last week, the vantage point that it reveals. When Paul or one of the other apostles writes a book like Ephesians, that vantage point is distinctly earthly. It is from Paul. It is imbued with wisdom from God. It's breathed by the Holy Spirit, but it's clearly rooted in Paul's experiences and Paul's relationship with that individual church. This letter to the seven churches offers a new perspective, which is a heavenly one. This is Jesus's vantage point on the same kinds of crises and problems that the apostles all often speak about from an earthly point of view, but now turned and reframed from the perspective of heaven. And so we might wonder, what has heaven to do with earth? It would be all too easy for us to fall into the trap of separating these two things from each other the earthly and the heavenly, the human and the divine, a letter from Paul to a church, and a letter from Jesus, which is revelatory. So before we get too far with that idea that undermines so much of the gospel, we see a connection here between the churches then and this heavenly vision. We see that there are seven churches and there are seven lampstands. And we see that Jesus is among the seven lampstands, which he says are the churches. Already, before we get to any of the content that Jesus says to these churches, we see that heaven and earth are tied together, that Jesus is among his people even now. And that the value of paying attention to this heavenly perspective is not only so we can get that final picture of what heaven will be like, but it's actually so that it can be beneficial to understanding what's happening right here in our lives right now. There was a lot of trouble in the ancient world for those seven churches. They found themselves in incredibly delicate situations where there was a general expectation that everyone who lived within the Roman Empire would participate in Roman practices, would observe Roman religious rituals, would make sacrifices to the emperor as to a god. If they didn't do those things, they were inviting all kinds of trouble, even death. There was, however, sort of a loophole. If you practiced a legally recognized religion, there was some flexibility. Your sacrifices to the emperor might be understood as to a leader instead of to a god. 
this maybe could have been palatable. But the catch with this loophole was that Christianity was not a legally recognized religion. Judaism, however, was. This offered a small glimmer of hope. If Christians still in the first century would only identify as Jewish, they might escape some measure of added trouble. This might work for some Jewish followers of Jesus, but for a growing community of Christians who were following Jesus without ever having been Jewish, well, that would be extremely difficult. To identify as Jewish would mean adhering strictly to the law of Moses, something the church did not want to burden new followers of Jesus with and which viewed as now unnecessary. By the time Revelation was written, Jewish synagogues were also increasingly rejecting Christian presence among them. Christianity was splitting off from Judaism in more and more ways. Going back didn't really seem like much of an option. Christians living in these decades could either go ahead and participate in emperor worship and avoid all kinds of problems with the state, or they could identify with Judaism and try to avoid those problems, but in doing so, find a whole new set of problems in their place. Throughout chapter 2 of Revelation, this is exactly the predicament we hear Jesus addressing in church after church. For the first church in Ephesus, they are congratulated for hating that option of adhering to Roman rituals. They reject the Nicolaitans who believed that Christians could just go ahead and do anything they wanted to do everything the Romans did. The Ephesians knew that God wouldn't tolerate those practices. But Jesus is concerned that in the process, they've forgotten their first love. They've forgotten their love for Jesus in their hatred of their cultural reality, and in their failure to respond in love toward Rome. Essentially, what Jesus is saying in this first letter to the church in Ephesus, Jesus is saying, you're right, but at what cost? You're right, but it doesn't mean anything in your lives anymore. Jesus introduces himself as the one who walks among the golden lampstands, the one who is present within the churches. And he calls out the church in Ephesus for not letting his light shine on their lampstand. He addresses them for being a poor witness to the gospel. Jesus pointedly reminds Ephesus and us that the purpose of the church is to be his light in the world, even in difficult cultures, even in objectionable circumstances even in the most dire days. The second church whose letter we heard read for us this morning is Smyrna. They also know the Roman option isn't for them. So they've chosen to identify as Jewish again, but they're finding troubles with this in the synagogues. They are being turned away, and they're suffering as a result. At this time, synagogues were commonly ending worship services with this new inclusion of a curse towards any of those heretics who followed Jesus. So in trying to worship God under the protection of a recognized religion, they are actually enduring more and new abuse and sometimes being turned back over to the Romans. And so if you continue reading in chapter 2, there's this next church, who we see actually adopts the first strategy in some regards. Pergamum has gone more toward that Roman route. 
some of them have realized that the easiest way to just get along is to do what's expected of them, to keep their heads down, to be pleasant enough. They've never renounced their faith in Jesus, but they have been misled, and Jesus calls them back to him. And in these three letters and these three approaches of trying to solve the same problem, it seems like an impossible situation. No matter which option the church chooses, they are either persecuted by the Romans or rejected by their once brothers and sisters, or they're called to repent by God. There doesn't seem like an easy way forward. What are they supposed to do? You know, I think that the church today is facing trouble as well. Churches have been facing trouble in the West as they find themselves no longer the ones who determine what's good and what's bad, what's acceptable and what's out of bounds. And they're having an identity crisis. And now in our present time, many churches are wrestling again with what it means to be the church when we can't gather together. Many Christians are struggling to know what it means to live out a life of faith when it feels like we barely have lives at all. And so much of what we normally do is put completely on hold for the duration of the season. And just like those seven churches in Asia, churches today are responding in all kinds of ways to the trouble they face and the future which feels so uncertain ahead of them. Like Ephesus, some churches have deep convictions about holiness and justice. Unfortunately, these convictions can lead to legalism or worse than legalism, can lead to a hatred of others more than love for God, while God always requires love for others. These churches can find themselves bent into postures of judgment, which makes them awful at engaging their culture. These churches, like Ephesus, forget their first love, instead pursuing the confidence of their own convictions at the expense of all else. These churches, it seems, need to be right. And if I'm honest with you, I think most often I can see myself taking this approach, wanting to be right above all else, risking forgetting my first love, of wanting to love God and neighbor at the same time. I think we can imagine any number of churches that fall into this category. Most recently, we've heard stories of churches that are continuing to gather in very large numbers, despite the public health restrictions on gathering. And they're doing this because they are convinced that public worship of God is a necessary and important thing. And they're right. It is so important. But in being right about that, they've forgotten love for their community. They've forgotten the grace of the gospel that even when we can't gather together, the Holy Spirit does minister to us. In being so focused on how right they are about this one theological point, they've lost sight of their first love, their very purpose for being. Turns out they've cast more shadows than been a useful lampstand. There are other churches, like Smyrna, who are eager to move backwards if it means a return to some measure of comfort and security, eager for the changes we've seen in the church to fall away, for the changes we've seen in our society to be forgotten again, eager to find comfort that we once felt in power and privilege. And they've stopped engaging with what actually is in pursuit of what only once was, forgetting that the steady feet of Jesus are present to them, 
and that he promises to carry them through this and every other trouble that they cannot yet imagine. I think I know lots of churches like that too. But there are also churches today that deeply understand the law of love and the freedom of the gospel. They know that legalism has no place in the church. They know that love of God and love of neighbor really is the summary of all the law and the prophets. They get all this. And while they try to live out of that, they risk forgetting about holiness, forgetting about being set apart, forgetting about the church not doing a deep dive into everything its culture says is good, acceptable, valuable, or necessary. It loves Jesus deeply, just like the church in Pergamum. But it gets misled at times into believing that there is no way to misuse the freedom that they're right, that they have. That Christians can behave and do whatever feels right to them. That far from legalism, there really are no rules as long as nobody's getting hurt. Again, if I'm honest, I can see pieces of myself in this response too. And these churches... Christians who struggle with that side of this equation, like Pergamum, need to be called back to the loving way of Jesus, whose words are a double-edged sword, and whose promises to provide for all of our needs, so that we can be confident that even when we have to take difficult positions, even when we must be put at odds with our culture or our neighbor, that we need not fear being ostracized or misunderstood or judged ourselves, even when the things that we believe and the things that we do seem quite strange at best and at worst actually contradict the values of all around us because we know that Jesus will provide for our needs. The good news for those seven churches in Asia and the good news for us today is that Jesus' words to the churches are not only words of condemnation, They are words of encouragement. Jesus sees the work of the church firsthand. Heaven knows our struggles, sees how we have risen to the challenge, and gently pushes us where we have faltered. Jesus calls the church back toward loving faithfulness. To the churches in Asia, he said that when you have two bad choices— When you have to choose between submission to Rome and retreat into a place where you are no longer welcome, when you're faced with that option, you reject them both. You find a new way, encouraged by his gospel, emboldened by his spirit. More than just encouragement, though, Jesus paints a picture of the church victorious. Victorious over all the powers which sought to minimize and oppress them victorious against impossible situations, victorious even as he is victorious. He promises them simple but good things, that they will be in the presence of their God, that they will know the life that he now knows, that he will care for them at all times. Still today, Jesus calls the church toward victory, that when self-righteousness or nostalgia or yielding to the pressures and temptations of our day seem to be our only options, there is another one. Overcome them. Overcome self-righteousness by choosing to love even when sorrow and sin are so plainly visible. 
overcome nostalgia by trusting that God's kingdom is still breaking into our world and our lives, that somehow tomorrow is a day more filled with God's goodness and God's power and God's presence than today is or than yesterday ever was. Overcome the temptation to follow the path of least resistance by trusting that the reward offered in God's kingdom is worth any trial or danger or trouble that we can possibly encounter. These letters to the churches, Jesus has continued speaking to the church in Toronto and to our church. They point towards something that answers these letters at the end of the book of Revelation. And while we're not quite there yet, I want to draw your attention toward it so you get a glimpse of that cosmic hope that Jesus is planting in the hearts of these churches, that Jesus, I think, wants to plant in the heart of our church as well. And Revelation 21 says this, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Friends, these words are trustworthy and true. Jesus, who died and yet is alive, overcame the powers of death and hell themselves and eagerly encourages his church to overcome even the most complex challenges of our day by following closely to him, trusting that God's dwelling place truly is among his people, that Jesus still walks among the churches, and that as we overcome all trouble and sorrow, we join with God in ushering in his coming kingdom of peace and joy. Truly, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. We're going to invite you into a time of reflection for you to tune your ears into what the Spirit is saying to you and to our church. So we're just going to leave a couple of minutes for you to meditate on and think about what God's Spirit's saying to you and maybe answer this question in journaling or time after the service. I invite you to a time of reflection now.